All right, are we ready to get started? Is anyone else coming through the hall yet? No. Nope. All right, good. Let's pray then and open up here. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to study your word. Lord, thank you for this freedom we have in this country right now to do this. Uh, This is not something to be taken lightly. And Lord, I just pray that as we look to your word now, that you would teach us, that you would speak to us through your word, and that you'd accomplish what you want to do. In your holy and precious name, we pray. Amen. All right. So, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Colossians. We're, of course, continuing our series this morning. And we're looking at the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. And our text for this morning is going to be verses 13, 14, and 15. And I'll read that for us here. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Here's what Paul says. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. If you remember from last week, we were dealing with two uh, fairly big concepts um, in, in terms of the scope of Scripture. We dealt with circumcision and baptism, and what Paul discussed as being the meaning of circumcision and the meaning of baptism and how those two signs of the covenants are intimately related, and and we talked about all that kind of stuff last week, and it was really good. We did sort of a a little survey of covenant theology to understand, like, how the Bible is structured and how it's put together and how we are to understand the signs of the covenants, namely circumcision and and baptism and how Paul did that. And if you'll remember, just looking, even if you just want to, a couple verses before the verses we just read, Paul discussed circumcision and baptism in this way, and when he said that baptism symbolizes two things. And Paul likes to talk about baptism this way. He says, baptism symbolizes being buried with Christ, that is, our, our dying to our sin, right? our sin being cut off from us, dying to it, it's being buried with Christ. And then he said it also symbolizes us being raised with him, that is, raised with Christ. So baptism symbolizes how we're raised with Christ by the same power that God raised Jesus from the dead. So he's talking about, Paul, that is, he's talking about how the sign of the covenant symbolizes these things. And now, as we get into verses 13, 14, and 15, he's going to describe the actual means by which those things come about. Because when we talk about sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, and these sorts of things, it it can begin to get, we need to be a little bit careful when we talk about them, because we want to make sure that we understand that baptism itself doesn't accomplish the things that it signifies by itself. Right? Baptism itself doesn't actually accomplish the cutting and the, the, the dying to sin and the being raised to new life. Right? We must distinguish between the thing and the sign, as Augustine says. Right? It doesn't actually accomplish that. But there is something that does actually accomplish that, and that's what Paul's going to be talking about here in these verses. So he's moving from the sign 
to the thing that is signified in the sign. And here's the thing. And you, here's how he's addressing his recipients, and you, the Colossians, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So he starts off, he starts off by discussing how the Colossians are dead in their trespasses and the uncircumcision of their flesh. Let's break this down really quickly. First of all, he says that they are dead. This is a dramatic statement. You notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that the Colossians are infected with sin. He doesn't say that they're dying in their sin. He says that they are, or that they were at least, dead. They're dead. They're not on their deathbed hoping to get medicine. They are already dead. They're in the grave. They're buried. You were dead in your trespasses, he says. And that means with respect to your trespasses. Now, I, uh, when I grew up in North Dakota, right, I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere. So there was lots of empty fields and lots of gravel roads everywhere. Some of you maybe grew up on, you know, in a place like that around here or someplace else. But when we were driving around, especially during the fall on these old gravel roads, you know, in, in the country, we'd see oftentimes these signs all over the place posted. And there were these signs. They were black signs usually with kind of red or orange letters. And the sign would say, no trespassing. You ever seen a sign like that before? No trespassing sign? Yeah, usually those were posted where, back where I came from for the purpose of protecting the land for hunting season. Yeah, because nobody wanted anyone else to go on their land and shoot deer during hunting season because they wanted to get the deer that were on their land themselves. All right? And so my dad and I always got thoroughly frustrated when we were deer hunting because we did that a lot when I was, when I was growing up. And we'd go around to all these different places, and, and we would try to hunt deer, and, and we'd find you know, a piece of land that didn't have a no trespassing sign posted. And it was awesome, because then we could go on that land, and we could shoot things. It was fun. But then if we were, you know, we kick something up out of a cattail slough or something, and the deer would then go running across the road into someone else's land, and that land did have a no trespassing sign, and we get thoroughly frustrated about that, because we couldn't chase it down. Why? Because we couldn't cross the boundary that was prescribed by the no trespassing sign. And that's the kind of trespassing that Paul's talking about here. Only he's not talking about transgressing a kind of human boundary, say for land or something, but he's talking about a spiritual boundary, the boundary of God's law. Because when God prescribes his law, to mankind, let's say the moral law, you shall not kill, you shall not covet, you shall not do X, Y, and Z. When God prescribes that, he is prescribing a boundary. And we are not to cross that boundary. To cross that boundary is to disobey God, it's to commit a trespass. And when we cross that boundary, we sin. Uh, I realize I don't need to tell you these kinds of things, right? You know that we don't we are not allowed to break the law of God and that when we do break the law of God, we sin. Now, what's the wages for that sin? Well, the wages of sin is death. Right? Romans. The wages of sin is death. And so Paul is here saying these guys are dead with respect to their trespasses. Because the Colossians have sinned, just like every single human being who's ever lived except one, because the Colossians have sinned, they have merited upon themselves the judgment of a holy, righteous, just God. 
and the wages for sin, if they are evaluated on the basis of their performance and adherence to God's law, is death. They are dead in their sin. That's with one respect. In another respect, they're dead with their sin because they can't do anything to save themselves. Dead people can't do squat. They're dead. They can't move. They can't accept medicine. Medicine ain't going to help them. They're dead. They can't do anything. This is a strong image that Paul is painting for us here. They are dead with respect to their trespasses. And a second thing he adds is they're dead with respect to the fact that they are uncircumcised in their flesh. Now, we talked about last week how Paul uses the image of circumcision in a spiritual way in a few verses beforehand, right, when he talks about how the Colossians have now been circumcised spiritually by being baptized into Christ. So we won't go over that again. If you forgot what I said about that, go listen to the, the online recording. But now he's saying that they were not circumcised physically. And they're dead in their trespasses, and they're dead in the fact that they have not been circumcised physically. Now what he's saying there, he's not, he's not really pointing out the fact that, oh yeah, you haven't been circumcised, therefore you are going to hell. No, no, he's using circumcision to explain the fact that they are not, as, as Greek people, as Gentile people, that they are not numbered among the Israelites. Meaning that they are not from the line of Abraham. Because one of the characteristic features of being from the line of Abraham, that is, of being in the Old Testament covenant community, is the fact that you receive the sign of circumcision as a part of that visible church, if you will. It's a part of that community. It's a sign of being in the Old Covenant. That's what circumcision was, as we talked about last week. And so when Paul says that they're uncircumcised in the flesh, he's saying, hey, you know, not only are you guys dead in sin, not only have you disobeyed God's law, but guess what? You're also not one of the Israelites. You're not part of that covenant community. At least you weren't. You're not part of it. And if you remember, that's a big deal. It's a big deal because in the Old Testament, there was really no salvation outside of being an Israelite. Now, if you were a Gentile, like Ruth or Rahab or somebody, you could come into the community. But God's people were the Israelites. That was the covenant community in the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. That was it. You had to become a part of that. Now, just because you were a part of that doesn't mean you were saved. Only believers were saved. There were plenty of non-believers even within Israel. But you still had to be a part of that community, for the most part, at least. And so, when, when Paul says here that they're uncircumcised in the flesh, he's saying, you guys are Gentiles. Salvation is not really for the Gentiles. It, has, it didn't go out You're uncircumcised in the flesh. You're not part of the covenant community. You are dead in your trespasses and you're not part of God's people. At least you weren't. But then, we get to verse verse, uh, 13, uh, the second half. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, comma, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. See, now Paul is beginning to explain the thrust of, of the New Testament, the thrust of the New Covenant. And that's this, that salvation is not simply for the Israelites, but salvation is now being broadened even larger than it has been before. And that salvation is going out now to the Gentiles. 
That's the thrust of, say, the book of Acts, isn't it? That's what, they're, what Paul and the rest of the apostles are constantly trying to convince people, especially the Jews. They're saying, listen, God's gospel is going out now to all people. For God so loved the cosmos, God so loved the world, that he gave his only son. God wills that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Not that every single individual be saved, right? But he's saying collectively, that is, all the nations, every kind of person, Jew, Gentile, Egyptian, African, Asian, Japanese, Russian, German. I mean, you fill in the blank. All kinds of people. God is drawing his people from all the nations and all the tribes and all the tongues. That's the thrust of the New Testament, right? The gospel's going out to the Gentiles. And so Paul's saying, you guys, you were dead in your trespasses. You were doubly dead. You broke God's law, bringing upon yourself infinite judgment from a holy God, and you were not even of the Israelites. Yet, even though you were completely hopeless, not a bit of hope for your salvation, you, God made alive. And how did he do it? Because he he's did it by forgiving us of all of our trespasses. And now Paul is here including himself in this. Notice the change to the first person there. He's saying, just like how I, Paul, the chief of all Jews, have been brought to Christ and made alive by God by virtue of me being forgiven of my sins and my trespasses, so now you also, as Gentiles, have been forgiven. God's people are now found, not just among the Israelites, but also among the Gentiles. You see the, this major thrust of what the Scripture in the New Testament particularly is teaching. Now, the Old Testament pointed forward to these kinds of things, too. You know, the Old Testament talked about how all of the nations, all the Gentiles, would praise God. Constantly in the Old Testament, Isaiah, the Psalms, all over the place. But it wasn't fully realized here until we get to the New Testament with the coming of Jesus. Now the gospel is going out to the Gentiles. It's amazing good news that we have going on here. Now, Paul doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say that we have been saved, both Jew and Gentile, by God forgiving our sins, but he explains exactly how this forgiveness comes about. Because we don't want to just say that the gospel is simply God forgives us. There's more to it than that. Because what matters is how God forgives us. And Paul explains that here very quickly, but very powerfully. And there's a lot of really important things here that I want to sort of dwell on. Look at verse 14. Um, Having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So there's a number of things that Paul wants to emphasize here as to the nature of how this forgiveness comes about. Sometimes I think we tend to have this idea that, maybe not so much among us, but I think evangelical Christianity in general tends to sort of have this idea that that God just forgives us because he wants to. In the sense that he can just say, okay, yeah, I forgive you. I don't need to punish sin. I'll just forgive you. 
That's an unbiblical concept. God, as a holy, just, and righteous God, cannot simply forgive arbitrarily or willy-nilly. Sin must be punished if God is to be righteous and holy and just. Sin must be punished in order for God to forgive. And that's what Paul is describing here. He's describing the cross as a place of judgment upon our sin, which Jesus took upon himself. And we'll talk about that and get more into that in just a second. But uh, one of the things I want to do before we do that is sort of say, uh, go, go through a quick list of what the cross is not. Because I think sometimes the best way to understand what the right answer is is to sometimes go through some of the wrong answers and distinguish between them. <laughs> I think uh, I really like what um, R.C. Sproul used to love to say in his theology courses that I listened to growing up, and he would say things like, the prerogative or the, the goal of a theologian is to make as many distinctions as possible. <laughs> he would say, the prerogative of a theologian is to make distinctions. And what he meant by that is this, that if we are going to really understand what something is, we need to understand what it's not. And so what I want to do here is break a brief list for you of what the cross is not. What did Jesus not do? When he came, how is forgiveness not accomplished, essentially? And then we'll talk about what it is. So first of all, what the cross is not, okay? First of all, the cross is not a spiritual metaphor. The cross is not a spiritual metaphor. Now, in our circles, you're not going to hear this too much, but this is very common, particularly among more of the liberal theological branches of Christianity. And what they'll say is something like this. They'll say that, you know, the the story of Jesus dying on the cross and the scriptural teaching of Jesus dying on the cross is not historical. That is, it's not something that actually happened. Rather, it's just, it's a fictional story of what happens in our own hearts when we realize what we are supposed to do as human beings. Now you notice what they're doing there. It's a fictional story of an inward spiritual reality that happens in us. And so what that means is that, you know, Jesus dying on the cross is simply to show us how we're supposed to be willing to die to our own self-interests and make sure we live our lives for God. And that if we do that, we can then be spiritually resurrected on the inside. Jesus can rise again in our hearts. And that we will then be where we need to be as Christians. And we'll have a spiritual inward transformation. And that's what this fictional story of Jesus is all about. That doesn't take more than you know a cursory reading of a passage like Paul here to see that the cross is much more than an inward spiritual reality. It's not a spiritual metaphor of something that happens in us. Now, it is biblical to say that there is a kind of resurrection that happens in us, right? There's a work of the Holy Spirit. We call that regeneration, being raised again to new life. That's part of what baptism symbolizes, is what Paul was talking about in our passage last week. So there's some truth to this, but this is not first and foremost what the cross is. It is not a spiritual metaphor for an inward transformation that we have, okay? Now, secondly the cross is not. Let me make sure I get these in the right order here. Secondly, what the cross is not, it is not simply a demonstration 
of God's love. The cross is not simply a demonstration of God's love. Now, there was a guy in the Middle Ages, sort of a kind of a wacky theologian by the name of Peter Abelard. He did some good things. But one of the views that he wanted to uh, teach to his students and to his readers in the Middle Ages was this idea that Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus being sent into this world to die, was simply a demonstration of how much God loves us. Namely, God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die to prove how much he loves us. So in this way, Jesus' death is not an atonement. It's not a sacrifice for sin. He's not taking our place and dying on our behalf. Jesus' death is simply a demonstration of God showing how much he loves us. Now, is it true that we see God's love for us manifested in Jesus' death on the cross? Of course it is. Scripture teaches that. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, and so on. I mean, there's passages about the fact that it is a demonstration of God's love. But that is not only what it is, and that's not primarily what it is. The cross is more than that, as we see in this passage. And again, we're going to get to what it is in just a second. Thirdly, what the cross is not. The cross is not... a moral example for us to follow. And this kind of goes in line with this up here, but there's a lot of people, particularly um, in sort of, again, in the more of the liberal sides of theology, that will try to say that Jesus' death on the cross is a historical event. It really did happen. But it wasn't an atonement. It wasn't a sacrifice. It wasn't a payment for sins. All that Jesus' death was is an example to show us how we're supposed to live our lives. We're supposed to live our lives faithful to God, and we're supposed to be willing to die in service to God. It's a moral example for us to follow. Now, is it true that Jesus is a moral example for us to follow? Of course it is. Right? There's, there's a little bit of truth, or maybe not a little bit, there's a lot of truth to the what would Jesus do movement. Of course, there's also some problems with it. But overall, Jesus is a perfect <clears throat> example of someone who followed the law of God, and we should seek to be like Jesus. That's part of the process of sanctification, seeking to be conformed to the image of Christ. So there's truth to this, but that is not, first and foremost, what the cross is all about. It is not simply a moral example for us to follow. And then finally, the cross is not a ransom to the devil cross is not a ransom to the devil. How many of you have ever read C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia? You read those? A few of you? Okay. How many of you have heard of them? All right, everybody. I know you're Presbyterians. You don't raise your hand, but I've got to try to do something to be, get some interaction going here. Um, yeah, I think pretty much all of us are at least familiar with the story of The Chronicles of Narnia. At least the most famous one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, that's C.S. Lewis's first one. I love C.S. Lewis. I enjoy reading him. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. But one of the things that I found that's interesting is C.S. Lewis's depiction of Aslan's death. Remember, Aslan is the lion 
in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? He's the Jesus figure. And what Aslan has to do is he has to die on the stone table, which is sort of the cross in the story, and he has to die on the stone table in order to save Edmund from the White Witch. Now, the White Witch is Satan in the story, and Edmund is supposed to be us, essentially, in the, in the allegory of the story. And Edmund, uh, he, what he did was he betrayed his siblings when they came into Narnia and sold them out to the White Witch. And so he merited upon himself you know, judgment, and he then was in bondage to the White Witch. She had a right to his life. And so then what Aslan had to do in the story was he had to die on the stone table in order to save Edmund from the power of the White Witch. Now, I'm not entirely sure whether C.S. Lewis really believed that this was the case in the Bible, but the story that he tells is an exact correspondence to what we call the ransom theory of the atonement in theology. And what the ransom theory of the atonement teaches is that Jesus had to die on the cross in order primarily to save us from the power of the devil. He had to ransom us from Satan's power. Now, in our text today, we're going to see that that certainly is the case in some respects. There is a, a, a binding of Satan that happens on the cross. There is a certain sense in which Jesus tri uh, triumphed over the power of the devil and rescued us from him. But that is not first and foremost what the cross is. It is not a ransom to the devil. That's not why Jesus had to die. He already has power over the devil. He didn't have to die for that reason alone. So, as you can see, all these four things here of what the cross is not are, have some truth to them. They're all true in some way, but what they try to do is they try to take a certain aspect of the atonement and then make it the main thing. All right, we don't want to do that. These things are true in a certain sense, but they fall short in terms of what Paul in the scriptures as well as other New Testament authors set forth as what the atonement is. Okay? Now, Let's get into what Paul actually says here about the atonement and figure out what exactly it is, now that we've distinguished between a lot of things that it isn't. The, verse, the very end of verse 13, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You notice here Paul is speaking in legal language, or what theologians often call forensic language. And legal language has this idea of a courtroom. And Paul here says that we, before we were made alive, before we had our sins forgiven, there was a record of debt that stood against us. And this record of debt that we have has legal demands upon us. That is, there is something that, God, that, that in terms of how holiness and justice works, in terms of divine justice, there is something that this debt demands of us. As we know from the rest of Scripture, that the wages of sin is death. That is, legally, in terms of what justice requires... Sin must be punished with eternal death. 
That is the legal demand of sin. Justice demands that sin be punished. And that's why it's a problem for us as sinful people if God is a holy, righteous, just judge. Because legally, justice requires that God punish us for our sin. Or at the very least, it demands that God punish the sin itself. Punishment has to be delivered for justice to stand. That is legally demanding upon God because he is righteous, because it's his nature. And you see Paul here describing sin as a debt that we owe. It's a record of debt. All of our trespasses, all the times we have crossed the boundaries of God's law, that is a debt that we owe to God. And that's a problem because if we owe a debt to God, it's an infinite debt. He's an infinite being. And furthermore, not only is it an infinite debt because God is an infinite being, but it's an infinite debt because once we sin, it can never, ever be removed from us, by us. Because once we've sinned, it's not like we have a time machine where we can go back in time and change it or something. No, it's there forever. It cannot be removed by us. It's an infinite debt. Only an infinite being can pay an infinite debt. And that's part of um, the, the major thesis of one of my favorite books in the Middle Ages, which is written by a guy named St. Anselm. And that book was called Cur Deus Homo. And in that book, Cur Deus Homo, Anselm wrestles with the question of why Jesus needed to become man. In fact, that's the name of the book, Cur Deus Homo, Why God-Man. Why did Jesus have to become man in order to to save us from our sin. And Anselm, of course, said the same thing I just did, that sin is an infinite debt that we owe to God. And he gets that from this verse and other verses in Scripture. Sin is an infinite debt. We can't pay an infinite debt. We're finite beings. And so human beings have an infinite debt that we owe to God. And Anselm, I love how he who puts this. Anselm says, only Jesus could possibly be the one to pay the debt that we owe to God. Only Jesus could do it. Because only Jesus could both owe the human debt as true man and pay the infinite price as true God. You just think about that. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ himself, could both owe the human debt as true man and pay the infinite price as true God. It's the only way it could have happened. The only way it could have been done. And that's why Paul is teaching this to the Colossians, right? This is his his, uh, little systematic theology for the Colossians, if you will. He's teaching them the essentials of the faith. And he's saying, listen, you have been forgiven of your trespasses as believers in Christ. How? Because... The record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands has been canceled. How? Because God set it aside when he nailed it to the cross. That is, Jesus took upon himself on the cross that debt that we owed. The way the scripture puts it is it says that Jesus became sin, even though he knew no sin, so we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took upon himself on the cross that debt infinite debt that we owed 
And he took it upon himself with all of its legal demands. God nailed it to that cross. And that is how our sins are forgiven, by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. See, there's no other way it could have happened. That's the only way we could have been saved. God, it sounds, it sounds a little impious to say, but God cannot simply forgive sin arbitrarily. He can't just forgive sin like we forgive when someone sins against us. Right? If, if my, you know, say, say I have a kid, I don't have a kid, but let's say I did, and the kid does something stupid and makes me mad, right? and um, he did something wrong, and I'm like, I forgive you. That child doesn't deserve to be forgiven. That child's sin has not been atoned for by himself or by anybody. Yet I still forgive him. Why? Because I forgive him out of the kindness of my heart. That's not the way God forgives us. God is a loving God. He's a merciful, gracious God. But guess what? God cannot let sin go unpunished. Someone's got to get punished. And left to ourselves, we get punished. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't get punished. Rather, our sin is transferred to Christ and He got punished for us. And He received that punishment that we deserved for our sin. He took that record of debt with its legal demands. And God nailed it to the cross so that we'd be saved. That's what Paul's teaching here. Now finally, as we look at verse 15, here's some, a result of what happens in this cross event. Paul says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Or in it, depending on uh, how you take the Greek there. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. Now, this phrase, rulers and authorities in Scripture, if you're not familiar with it, is usually a reference to demonic forces. Uh, that's just how the first century Christians would refer to demonic forces. They talk about rulers and authorities and principalities and those sorts of things. Now, God, in this act on the cross, in this atonement that Jesus accomplished for us, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed the demonic powers. Now, there's a certain sense in which we can say here that Revelation 20 and in, in the binding of Satan has been fulfilled, at least in the already aspect here. Because you remember, in the New Testament, there's this already and there's this not yet aspect. You remember that? That Jesus, the Jesus kingdom has already come in a certain sense, but it has not yet come in another sense. Well, here we could say that that's the binding of Satan described in Revelation 20 has happened in the already sense. There's a certain sense in which Satan has been bound by the work of Jesus on the cross. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan isn't at work, that he's not doing anything, that he isn't prowling about like a lion seeking someone to devour. But what it does mean is that he's bound in the ultimate sense, and he's bound in this way. For us as believers, Satan cannot come to us and question our salvation. He cannot threaten us as believers in Christ. Why? Because Satan can't bring before us any of our failures as evidence of our not being saved. 
Why? Because Jesus has overcome our failures. He has taken upon himself all of our sin, and he has paid it all. He's paid it all. There's nothing Satan can bring to us. There's nothing that Satan can bring into God's court and say, ah, see, here's evidence. No, he can't do that. All the evidence against us has been removed by Jesus. And that's how God, in in a very ultimate sense, has disarmed the demonic powers and has put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He triumphed over the enemy. He saved us. Forgave our sins. And there's a great sense here in which this should provide us with a lot of comfort. It should provide us with a lot of assurance of our salvation. Because we don't have to worry about whether we've done enough to get into heaven. We don't have to worry about whether our failure in some respect disqualifies us from being with Jesus in paradise. Because Jesus himself has fulfilled all of the conditions necessary for us to go and be with him. He paid that sin debt with all its legal demands for us. And he lived a perfect, righteous life that we couldn't live and has given us the righteousness he merited in that life so we can be declared righteous before God, so we can be justified. So God can say when he looks at us, not, oh man, look at that sinful person there. But so God can look at us and say, hey, I see my son. I see his robes of righteousness on you. You're mine. That is the wonderful, beautiful gospel that Paul declares to us right here in this passage. Let's let that be a comfort and joy for us today as we continue to worship this morning and as we leave here. Let's, let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for the clear teaching in your word that we see here this morning. This clear teaching of your Apostle Paul. Lord, we thank you that you have conquered You've conquered the evil powers. You've conquered Satan. He can't bring anything against us. Lord, we thank you that you took upon yourself that record of debt with all its legal demands. And we thank you, Lord, that you died in our place as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Lord, we pray that you would work a deeper knowledge of this in us. Help us not to be to be shaken or to be moved by false teachings of what your cross is. Help us to be solid in what your word clearly teaches, that you gave yourself for us as a sacrifice for our sins. Work in us a deeper knowledge of this and convince us of its great truth and give us comfort and assurance as we continue throughout this life and as we worship you again this morning in the service. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen.